Greetings and welcome to the Centralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast. I am CEO at Cleros. Thank you for joining us. We're on a mission to bring you the latest in legal institutions through discussions with experts in the field of blockchain, legal tech, and beyond. My co-host today is Damian Malvasic. How are you today, Damian? Good. Excellent, to be honest. It's a bit of a rainy day in Serbia and really looking forward to our today's guest, the, the one and only Kate Sills. Yes, Kate is a person I greatly admire and who has been very influential in my thinking about decentralized justice. Um, so, hello, Kate. How are you? I'm very happy you're here. <laughs> Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really a pleasure. Good. Let's give you a bit more about Kate. So Kate Seals earned her degree in computer science from UC Berkeley. She has researched and written on the potential use cases of smart contracts to enforce agreements and create institutions orthogonal to legal jurisdictions. Kate is a software engineer at Agoric, building composable smart contracts components in a secure subset of JavaScript. You will have to explain exactly what that means later. Uh, and in her work, she's a bizarre mishmash of hippie anarchism and economic liberalism beefed up with lots of technological determinism. And you will have to explain that too a bit later. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, the interesting thing here, so that I find fascinating about you, above all of this, is you are building a tiny house in your spare time. Like, can you explain that, please? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's see. I think this started like five years ago or so. I was... Um I was living and working in DC. This was right. This was, this was after college. Um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of, I had been jumping through a lot of hoops, right. You know, through my whole academic career. And then I finally got to the end and I was like, well, <laughs> what do I do now? Right. Like what, what's the goal of life now? Um, and so, uh, I got really into living simply and, uh, just kind of trying to carve out a different, life experience than kind of the normal rat race. And so uh, I moved uh, back to California, started building a tiny house. And it was um, uh, with with a, a background in computer science, it was really interesting to see the similarities between um, construction and engineering. You know, there's, um, I think, I think uh, being a software developer really helps because there's a lot of circumstances in which you're learning something for the first time and you, you mm. Google it and you figure it out. Right. And so not knowing anything about construction, um, you know, there was a lot of Googling, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, you know, looking up YouTube videos about how to install a metal roof. Right. Um, mm. So I'm still working on the house. Uh, it's it's been quite a long time, but the uh, I, I would say it's like maybe like 75 percent of the way done, and uh, it's currently on um, on my parents' farm uh, near Sacramento. So uh, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I just wanted to ask. So your your tiny house is it some sort of a mobile home that you can you know pitch up anywhere you want, or will it be on your parents' farm for good? Uh, yeah, so it's um, the the plans that I got. I, I bought plans for this. Um, they had me build it on a trailer structure uh, mm -hmm. where the walls are bolted onto the trailer, and so um, the the dimensions that it's designed um, as are are made for being able to go on a single lane of a freeway. So if you wanted to, you could take it. Uh, you could. People do take it around kind of as an RV. Honestly, I don't trust my uh, <laughs> my construction <laughs> skills enough to do that. Um, but I think it would. I, I think it is movable. Um, so you know, it could be a, a mountain home or um, you know, yeah. 
I can yeah. I can take it wherever uh, wherever life takes me. Yeah, imagine imagine doing a like road trip that you go like uh, you go west to east and you go like like Burning Man with your little trailer house and then you go. <laughs> I guess <laughs> that could be really really fun. I, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned that you like you, you were raising a farm, Kate. Uh, you mentioned something about a farm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I grew up um, near Sacramento on an organic farm. Uh, my grandfather actually bought the land after World War II, so it's been in the family for a while. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, my, my dad also went to UC Berkeley, um, and, uh, he was a forestry major at the time and kind of got, um, uh, you know, there are all these new teachings coming out about organic farming and how, um, how, you know, that was really different than what they called conventional farming, where, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're not really, uh, paying attention to what's going on. You're just kind of, um, reacting mechanically it's like you know oh i have i have pests okay let's let's spray some pesticide oh you know the the crops are looking a little uh you know low in nutrition well like mm. you know, let's 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 just lay on some fertilizer right so it's like not um what i think i think what my dad really liked about organic farming was that um you kind of had to understand it at a system level you know there was no easy fix you had to kind of work with what you had so uh, mm. when he came back from college and started working with my grandfather um they started converting it to uh being all organic and so it's like it's uh we grow rice and beans and and popcorn and a few other things and we have um we have a mill facility too uh, so we, we clean um beans and things like that taking the rocks out that sort of thing mm. It it seems that you know looking at from from organic farming and and you know uh, in, engineering skills in forestry to computer science and and agoric, you sort of grew up in a in an in an innovation environment since from from the get go pretty much starting from <laughs> Sacramento. I wanted to ask you a question: what what drove you to computer science? Growing up around surrounded with all of that, I mean, I know that for me it was a, a similar story. You know, growing up surrounded by you know economics and, and and medicine and i sort of ended up in political science but what actually drove you to computer science in particular yeah well um actually i originally wanted to be a lawyer um so i, mm. I started out college thinking that i was going to be going to law school and i started out as a uh, philosophy major pre-law with cognitive science and then um you know, I was, I was hearing more about what it was actually like to be a lawyer. Right. Um, and, um, there were, um, people were telling me about, um, you know, problems of alcoholism, like people didn't seem very yeah. happy about it. Right. And, uh, so I was, I was trying to find a different career that still, you know, allowed me to carry through all of my interests. And, um, when I was taking the cognitive science classes, um, one component of the cognitive science classes was computer science. So I had to take a few computer science classes. Um, and my dad had actually done, um, some, um, some programming back in the day. He had written like a land leveling software program. So he was like, yeah, you should take more of those. And I was like, well, Okay, you know, I'll I'll fit that in, and then um, as I went through college, it um, I realized I just I really liked those classes, and it seemed like uh, I don't know if any of them were actually easy, but it it uh, it seemed to kind of come naturally, um, even though it, you know the classes were hard, and I really enjoyed them. So um, I added on a computer science major, kind of I think it was like my 
junior year or something. So I kind of, <laughs> I had a lot of work to catch up on. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, there's something, um, there's something really cool about computer science in that it's a, I think it's a bit like physics. It almost feels mm. like, especially when you're working with, um, with algorithms, it's almost like getting down to the essence of, of, of life, you know? Um, so I, I really liked that aspect of things. You know that uh, we have a member of the community. Uh, her name is Sophie and she's um, an arbitrator in the UK uh, and she has been interested about Claros for a long time. Uh, and she is learning um, programming now. Uh, and she, she always tells that um, she finds that legal reasoning and computer science and programming basically are very similar, the, the way of, of thinking. Yeah, I really, I really think so. I was reading a, uh, a paper today about um, form contracts, where um, it's not not exactly like, you know, uh, filling in a form with questions and answers, right? But like uh, contracts that lawyers will reuse again and again and just kind of like change the details a little bit. Right. And um, the the paper was saying that, um, you know, after a while you get like all of this cruft, you know, all of all of this messiness in the contract. Right. And people don't know whether it's meant to be there or not. Um, you know, they ju are just kind of like following what other people have done. And it occurred to me that that is exactly technical debt, right? There are so many, um, comparisons between legal drafting and writing software. And I think the legal system has a lot of the, they're experiencing a lot of the pain points that you do in software engineering, but without the, uh, the benefits of using Git and, uh, mm. you know, IDs, code editors, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, uh, do you know the, do you know the folks at Legalese, Meng Wong and Alexis Chung? Yeah. 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 I feel like they've been doing a really great job of, uh, comparing the two, um, disciplines and trying to bring the software engineering practices and kind of like safety nets to legal work. No, well, I have a question, Kate. Um, so, because I've known you for some time and I just follow you on Twitter, of course. Um, mm -hmm. like, how was it for a, like a libertarian going to Berkeley, uh, for school? Mm -hmm. It's just liberal capital of, of the U S I guess. Yeah, I feel like um, I feel like Berkeley has a certain reputation that's somewhat at odds with the day-to-day -day experience. So I think the uh, the city itself. Well, first of all, going back to like the '60s and things um, with the free speech movement in Berkeley, there was um, I think at the time universities were kind of seen as governing the students in place of the parents. So even public universities had very strict rules, right and um, and they, you know, they thought that they could, um, for instance, stop students from um, um, campaigning for political causes on campus and things like that, right? So um, Berkeley got this reputation because they were one of the first universities to kind of overthrow that and actually get student rights in terms of speech, right? Being a public mm -hmm. university that the, that the uh, First Amendment would apply there. Um, and so I really admire that legacy. But I think given that history, it's kind of created this reputation for Berkeley that doesn't quite match with the day-to-day -day experiences. So um, I feel like like at Berkeley, I think there's like 40,000 students total or something like that. So um, you can kind of find whatever it is that you want to do there at Berkeley. So if you want to do student activism, you can. But I think people find that there's, um, or, or they may see a group of 10 students, right? 
and think that that's somehow representative of the whole. But like that's quite a small number compared to forty thousand students. <laughs> so I feel like I feel like um, the majority of students are very academic and they're just kind of going for better mm-hmm. or worse. You know, um, they're just going to school. Um, and then you kind of get what will happen in a lot of these uh, student or uh, these protests or things like that is that you get people from all over the Bay Area who aren't students coming mm. to Berkeley and just kind of wanting to rough people up, um, which is a really strange phenomenon. But but as a student, I um, at the time I had grown up as a as a conservative, so I was part of the Berkeley College Republicans and things, and. Um, I actually found that contrary to my expectations, professors were extremely friendly and um, willing to almost bending over backwards to accommodate uh, students. So, um, for instance, uh, I had a political science professor make kind of make kind of like an offhanded comment about Condoleezza Rice, who at the time was someone that I, you know, at least looked up to in terms of a woman, you know, uh, being in a position of power. Right. Um, and so I talked to him about it after the class, um, and the next class he apologized to a group of like 800 students. And that really surprised me, right? Like, you know, you wouldn't given, I think given how Berkeley is, um, mentioned often in conservative media, um, they wouldn't expect that. And so, um, so actually I found it to be a very welcoming environment where, you know, there were, there were a lot of um, very diverse interests and very diverse students, and there was a lot going on, but everyone was able to coexist in peace for the most part. Hmm. I guess that is a model for the modern world at the very end. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking about one thing that that, that you mentioned actually that Fed asked, and I think that we sort of skipped an important point. You know, they say for our generation, some there is that famous quote that we are the right children of left parents. You know, it's interesting to me, especially when 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 I get get a chance to meet and talk with uh, young uh, American conservatives. What is what is the thing that sort of uh, um, led you to libertarianism? How did you become a libertarian? What was yeah. your what, what was what was the key point for you? Yeah, um, I think it was a gradual process. Um, I definitely remember the uh, the essence of it being there. Um, I think the, the thing with conservatism, uh, especially nowadays, and even when I was growing up, is that there wasn't a lot of intellectual roots, um, mm. like the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the intellectual roots were like Dinesh D'Souza and Ann Coulter, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so there wasn't, there wasn't a lot to uh, grasp or to hold on to there. Um, so I think I was always kind of searching for things. Um, but, uh, Let's see. I think, I think I thought maybe, um, you know, uh, government might not be very good at, um, um, you know, social programs and things like that, but they're probably yeah. pretty good at national defense and, and that sort of thing. Right. So I think, I think that was kind of the mindset I was coming, um, I was coming from as a conservative and I'm, I'm no longer a conservative. Um, but, but, um, then I, um, <laughs> this is kind of funny, but I, I tried to become an FBI intern and no, I got no. the internship, but it was conditional on passing a polygraph. 
And <laughs> I, <laughs> I prided myself on, you know, on my integrity and things, but I, I did not pass the polygraph and, yeah. <laughs> and, and looking into what the polygraph was and how it worked and how they were using it. I was like, this is not science, right? Like why, yeah. why are, why are they doing this? And, uh, that whole process, um, kind of affected me deeply and really made me lose respect for, um, uh, kind of the law enforcement or national defense portion of government. And at that point I was like, well, <laughs> what's hmm. left. Right. Um, yeah. but, but I, I think I always had a, uh, a sincere, um, um, appreciation for people's rights and for liberties and, and things like that. Like, um, uh, I had a political blog when I was an early teen and, um, you know, my, some of my positions were like being against the death penalty and things like that. Um, and so I think, I, th I think it was kind of a gradual process of, um, realizing more about what was going on in the world and kind of, um, uh, shedding some of the preconceived notions that I had had and really embracing, yeah. um, kind of more of a, um, a classical liberal, more of a, a rights-based approach. Mm. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. And, and, well, let me make this the hook now. So, and how, how do you start working on blockchain, right? Do you go mm -hmm. from these libertarian ideas and, and then blockchain, which to me, it seems like a natural step. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, I had, I had been interested in Bitcoin, uh, for a while. I had bought Bitcoin in like 2013 and then I didn't know what to do with it. So I sold it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, but it, it wasn't really until, um, Ethereum came around and people started talking about, uh, smart contracts in the Ethereum sense that I started getting really interested. Um, cause I think one of the, uh, one of the examples on the Ethereum homepage, uh, there for a while, it might still be there was, um, uh, like you could create your own, uh, uh, like, a board of directors contract or something like that. Right. With voting and, and different things. And I was like, huh, like that's, hmm. that's really, that, that seems really different to have this, this platform that's run by no one in particular and everyone at the same time, um, be doing these kinds of like institutional things. Right. So I started getting deeper and deeper. And then, um, I went to, uh, uh, let's see. I went to a conference at Berkeley um, in which um, this economist, uh, Sinclair Davidson, was presenting. And mm -hmm. um, he started talking about um, institutional economics and blockchain. And I had known a little bit about economics. I hadn't really taken any classes, but um, uh, I, I guess like kind of the libertarian worldview seems to um, get a lot of stuff from economics. Um, but I had never heard the institutional economics portion of things. So that caused me to kind of go on a rampage, uh, <laughs> buying a whole bunch of books and uh, just reading like everything that I could get my hands on, um, about this. because I found it so interesting that there was, first of all, that there was this area of study that I hadn't heard of that was talking about how we, how we interact with other people and how we make agreements and how we are able to trust each other and things like that. And then there was this, computer science area blockchain in which maybe we could actually experiment with some of those things. And it was that combination that really, really interested me because we haven't really had, um, 
an opportunity to experiment with governance since like, you know, being like James Madison. Right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, I found that extremely fascinating and um, yeah, I've, I've been working in the blockchain space ever since. Yeah. That's so fascinating. You know, you know that I, I came to blockchain in kind of a similar way. Like I, I studied economics in university and I actually specialized in institutional economics and specialized to the level you can specialize in your like college undergraduate studies. And I read like lots of Douglas North, right? Who was the, um, basically I think the, the founder uh, of the um, yeah, institutional economics. And then I saw your talk. I remember um, a while ago, where you spoke about this model of um, Barry Weingast and Gina Hadfield about the rule of law. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, uh, I say, ah, uh-huh. well, this is what that, what we need. Like your talk was like um, a th- um, something that I, I guess it like was the catalyst for lots of ideas I had, but I didn't know how to p- put them into like um, clarity if you want. So that's that's fascinating, and that's really cool to know uh, how you came to to blockchain. Um, so Damien, you were going to ask something. Yes, and, and <laughs> actually, it, I was. I, I wanted to to connect upon you know institutional economics as a topic, which seems you know foundational to a lot of work that we're doing, a lot of research that we're doing, and everything. And it seems that it it all brought us together in <laughs> one way or another. Um, but my my question was actually regarding uh, your your current position uh, at Agoric. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on there, and how does it feel to be working at a place that is pretty much aligned with with superstars of computer science these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I love working at Agoric. It is fantastic. Um, I I met Mark Miller, who's our chief scientist at a conference. I was kind of spewing about <laughs> smart contracts to someone at the conference. They were like, okay, there's this person that you have to meet. And they kind of pulled me over to Mark Miller and I started talking to him and it was, it was amazing. Like he, he had these concepts about smart contracts that kind of like what you were saying, Federico, like I, I had thought about, but I, I couldn't like put into specific terms and he had terms for that already. And um, so, uh, so anyways, I, I started uh, interacting with the, uh, with the Agoric team and, and they had, I think they were still um, not public at that point. I, I think they were still kind of under wraps. Um, but um I was able I was able to join them um, when it was just still the first uh, four founders, and uh, yeah, it's it's been fantastic. I think there's probably not very many teams who have such a uh, a wide breadth of knowledge in computer science and uh, economics and uh, uh, political philosophy and just kind of being interested in everything. Um, and the kinds of things that they've been thinking about for a long time are exactly the kinds of things that I'm interested in. Um, so especially for, uh, for Mark, you know, trying to create a cooperative world in which people can, you know, can make things out of software and share things in software and sell things in software, right? Um, kind of just bringing this, the civilization that we know of in the physical world, bringing that to the software world has kind of, um, not to put words in his mouth, but I, th- I think that's kind of been a life goal of his. Um, and so it's been, it's been really fantastic to take these interests of mine and, and be able to, uh, 
pair program, if you will, with uh, people who are working on this uh, for quite a long time. Um, actually, this was kind of a trick question because the, 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 the sort of uh, as an intro to a big question, which is now looking at your experience, looking at you know the team that you're working on and all the things that you were that, that we are discussing here, starting from computer science to philosophy to you know political history and all of these other elements. The question is, how do we create novel? stable, and ambiguous, and transparent institutions? Do you, <laughs> I know it's a very big question. And but, you have to but, answer that in 30 seconds now, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Let's see. Um, well, well, first, I think, I think blockchains get us a lot of the way there, right? I mean, in terms of um, they're taking out an element of... Uh, of of human um, uh, capacity for cronyism, right? That we have a lot in our normal lives. Um, just, just the fact that uh, things must be deterministic, right? You know, you must be, um, if you're running a node or you're running a, a, a miner, you must be um, doing the same thing, doing the same computation as the standard that's been agreed upon. Otherwise you're probably going to be losing money, right? Mm. Like the, the, the fact that we've kind of, um, by having uh, these checks and balances in terms of the computation, we've kind of taken out the possibility, or at least hopefully, of, of uh, someone um, you know, doing the computation in a way that benefits themselves. Um, I think that layer in and of itself, if it's done correctly, um, gets us, it, it, it doesn't get us all the way there, but it, solves a problem that I think we thought was previously unsolvable in the, uh, the realm of institutions. Uh -huh. So, so I, I think that's one thing. Um, I'd be interested in hearing if, uh, if either of you have any um, ideas about how we achieve those institutions, because that, I think that is a big goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have my, my own answer to this is like, I so I, I come from Argentina, right? And this country had so many problems with currency and governance that um, because of basically corruption uh, in the government uh, elites. So my my interest in blockchain came about because of yeah. So you have this a blockchain is like a bureaucracy. A DAO is like a bureaucracy that works as it's expected to work, and and no nobody can like tamper with it uh, and put their friends and collude and all that, right? If, if it's correctly built, right? So that's that's my interest. In a, in a country that has seen economic decline for 70 years because of bad governance, basically. So, well, we have this, um, this technology that makes sure that everything is going to work as the constitution was written. And, and yeah, as, as you mentioned before, like Madison was the last one who got... Um, to build institutions at large scale, right? Uh, and I see ourselves kind of the, like the federalists in the of the new age because they had these discussions. But what what were they discussing in the 18th century? They were discussing mechanism design, basically. How do we design mm. this mechanism called constitution so there is no collusion and there is no so the, the incentives are correctly balanced, I guess. So. 
That's if you read the Federalist Papers and all the the, the anti-federalists and all the debates that you had back then. So it was basically, yeah, okay, how how powerful do we want the Congress to be compared to the executive? Or do we want the executive to be a king or someone who is elected? And how is this guy to be elected? And they even discussed random selection, like. Uh, so the, the and they discussed random selection. Uh, the, the guy who proposed that was Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was um, uh, uh, he was like a radical back then, and he was a really a big admirer of the Greek and Greek democracy. And he has this famous quote he says that says America will be at large what the Athenian polis what is small, small right. So they were at that um, situation where they had to construct new institutions and with not much knowledge because they didn't know that much. They knew history, of course, they knew the Greek. But I see that ourselves kind of doing something like that. And the mm-hmm. blockchains and the institutions we build now, like, for example, Kleros, like the way in which Kleros works. Uh, so it's it's it, we, we are thinking of this build to last, right? It's mm-hmm. and something that is going to be working as expected and that no one will tamper uh, with for a long time, so that's that's how I see ourselves uh, as kind of institution builders, if you want. I think that one, you know, in my opinion, uh, it is absolutely key to 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 start looking at things. You know, I think that the word revolutionary is being thrown around a lot these days concerning anything from you know uh, scam tokens to things that are truly you know life changing. Um, but I think that it's it's very important to put into the entire equation the aspects of time and something that we've discussed many times before, which is the question of upgrading of mental software, or however we called it, which is that at this point, I, I feel that we are in a, in a, let's say, in a tooling phase. We are developing tools that should empower communities, small communities, medium-sized communities, large, large communities at large. But one element that that lacks in all of this and one element that 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 uh is pretty much the the, the only thing that is completely um how do you say that um, uh, the unpredictable is is the, is the factor of time and i think that with the with this this process we take a look at it from a perspective of 20 to 50 years is something that is going to have certainly uh, um, a very wide impact because one of the things that, on which blockchain is based is the idea of the free market and the market dictating what is going to get integrated and what is not. And I think the most effective solutions will certainly become a part of some kind of a larger political project. And I think that this is another element that needs to be taken into account, that is the political state in which the world finds itself now, which is, you know, there is that, that, that also that famous quote, I always forget where it's from, when it says the old world is dying, the new one is still struggling to the, to be born. This is the time of monsters. That's good. And I think that it, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think that in this in this uh, uh, sort of uh, context, I think that what we should expect in the years to come is this birth of a new world, and I think the blockchain is going to have certainly a strong impact on all of this. My two cents. Yeah, I think I think I would I would definitely agree with that. I think um, I think also people don't quite realize how bad the current environment is. 
like I, I think they kind of realize that our political institutions in the U.S. are <laughs> are breaking down quite a bit, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but uh, but I think you know just from a, a access to justice perspective, I think um, until people actually need access to justice, I think they don't quite realize how bad it is. Like um, especially if you're um, if you're the kind of person who um, you're you know your only experience with something like that is uh, through um, you know, uh, your uh, large corporation uh, making multinational agreements or something mm. like that, right? You're like, yeah, this works fine, right? Mm. But I think um, on an everyday basis, um, Jillian Hadfield uh, makes this point a lot. Uh, she's she's a um, a law professor um, that I'm a huge fan of. Um, but she, you know, she talks about her own mm. her own life and how um, when she was going through a divorce, it basically bankrupt bank bankrupted her right um and Mm. i think um i I think there's uh the kind of stuff that you're working on uh at claros is really important on multiple levels kind of on this you know these large-scale institutional levels and then also you know just um seeing if we can make small improvements on on people's day-to-day and um and I think the situation is so bad. Like I think Jillian Hadfield says, uh, any kind of uh, legal action for an amount less than a uh, hundred thousand dollars. So if if the thing that you're hoping to gain is less than a hundred thousand uh, dollars, it's probably not worth it, right? So mm-hmm. there's like a huge, there's huge room for improvement. Um, and I think the, uh, um, you know, the blockchain space can potentially help with that as well. Uh, definitely that's so that's what we are aiming to do so um provide uh, affordable justice for everyone um and let me ask you uh, kate so like your view on since you were mentioning about things going bad in <laughs> in the us so what's your view on the current political climate of trump and the election and yeah and how, how everything is in the us <laughs> Um, well, let's see. Uh, it's really hard not to just go want to like, you know, bury my head in the sand. Like it is so bad. Right. Um, uh, I think, I think it's been a long process of, of political institutions being eroded and Trump is more of a symptom, um, than the cause, although he's done a lot of damage himself. Um, so Justin Amash is a uh, is a representative um, currently in Congress who um, switched from being a Republican to being an independent and then became part of the Libertarian Party, which is um, a political party, not necessarily representing all libertarians. But anyways, um, he, he has said some really interesting things about how the process has broken down. So, for instance... Um, uh, like when I was growing up, there was this, um, there was this, uh, cartoon about like, you know, this is how a bill that bill is made, right. Schoolhouse rock, like, you know, there's this whole process. Right. And what Justin Amash says is that basically that process doesn't exist. Like if you want to present a bill or if you want to present an amendment, you can't just do that as an independent, uh, member of Congress, you have to go through the party process, which means that basically if, the two political parties uh, don't like what you're doing. It just doesn't get done, right? There's no opportunity to even open it up for debate. Um, that's yeah. it's not allowed. So the kind of uh, 
collaborative, deliberative process that we imagine that Congress is doing um, just isn't happening. It's basically a negotiation between the heads of the two parties with the president. Um, and, and then, you know, on top of that, Congress has really ceded a lot of authority to, uh, to the executive branch. And, um, so they're not, they're not challenging the executive branch, um, in the way that we would expect. And this goes back, um, you know, many presidents like, uh, for instance, when Obama, um, was, uh, uh, conducting drone warfare and, um, you know, which ended up killing a, uh, a U.S. citizen on foreign soil, um, Congress didn't really do very much about that, right, to, to rein it in. Um, and so I think, I think we've kind of, um, I don't know what it, what the cause is. Maybe it's hyper-partisanship. Maybe it's just not really understanding how the branches of government were supposed to be set up in the, in the first place. But I think we've really gotten out of balance in such a way that the uh, the delicate balance of the three branches just isn't as it was intended, and that's having pretty dire consequences. So even if we hopefully um, get rid of Trump uh, in the next election, we we're, we still have this legacy uh, coming from Trump and coming from before him of um, all of these bad practices that probably won't be cleaned up in the next presidency, right? Because everyone wants power if you think you can use it for something good, right? So Absolutely. no one has the incentive to to limit their own power. Um, but that's really what needs to be done. Mm. I, I, you know, I see so many things in the in the U.S. that happened before in Argentina, like in terms of kind of decay of institutions. You have this, you find Neil Ferguson, um, he's a historian from Scotland. Actually, I think he's now in Stanford doing his residency at the Hoover Institution. And he has this book um, that is how institutions die or something, you know, how, how they decay and die, right? And I see like that, but not just in the US, but I see like an Argentinization okay. of, of the world in like many places. Um, mm. And I, and there's also an, another thing happening that really not, not just institutions of nation states are becoming um, uh, like decaying, but also our interactions with people are starting to happen in a different world. That is the digital world. Like I, I always say that Facebook or Google or big platforms are becoming like nation states in some way they don't have the territorial aspect but they do have the if the if their platform is the territory so like facebook has a, a set of rules uh that um yeah so like they create the law basically they execute the law because they have a moderators who enforce the the law and so it's kind of a little government or a huge government because they have like two billion users but yeah, of course, people tell me, yeah, but you can leave Facebook when you want. Yeah, but you could also leave Louis the Fourteenth France if you didn't like how he used to <laughs> rule France, right? So the the network effects are so powerful that I I, I see this as, as kind of a it, it's becoming less and less relevant what governments can actually do because we spend we we derive most of our or not, not most but many of our um interactions from from different political structures um i discussed this with barry Weingast at, at some point and and he he agreed <laughs> about this uh he didn't think that facebook was a government in itself but i i see this like um i see that direction so 
and this is also a like maybe the next wave of democratization should like aim of how we make the internet a place where people have a voice in what's happening because where you are in facebook you are basically a subject to a to a emperor if you want um and we discussed it with with you kata uh, a bit in the past so let, what what do you think about about this how governance will affect the digital world that is coming yeah yeah um hmm. it's a very big question i think i think um I think you're right that the position of people in regards to companies like Facebook or Google really is kind of a surf to, uh, to, to their Lord. Right. Um, and, but, but I think what's happened is that people have kind of, um, and I think this is happening offline as well. They've lost uh, their sense of community and community responsibility. Right. Like there used to be such things as like, um, sorry, this is a bit of a digression, but there used to be such things as uh, mutual aid societies, right? So you might be um, a tradesperson and decide to join this mutual aid society that would basically effectively be your life insurance and health insurance, right? So, and, and uh, you know, these would be your neighbors and your coworkers. And, you know, if, if you got sick, they would take care of your kids and your wife and that sort of thing, right? And I feel like... Um, Uh, in modern society, we've kind of lost a lot of those uh, community governance structures. Um, we've kind of lost that um, those forms of safety net and accountability. And so, when it comes to recreating life in the digital on the digital side of things, um, I think we just really don't have very many good examples to draw from. We just don't we don't know what it's like to govern ourselves anymore. Um, yeah. And so, I think when you When you get to something like Facebook, um, I think it's very indicative of the kind of life that we're accustomed to, where there's a one-size-fits-all policy that is, uh, you know, like, I'm pretty sure Facebook's policy, maybe they have company or country-by-country uh, country policies, but, like, for the U.S., it probably applies to the whole U.S., right? Um, and maybe there's particular state laws, but there's no such thing as, like, you know, um, we have created this particular community with these particular rules and maybe you can, you, maybe you can swear or maybe you can't, or maybe you can say these things or maybe you can't, you know, there's no such concept I think in people's minds as being able to create their own intentional communities that may have different rules than everyone else. Um, and I think it's that loss that we're really, that we're really feeling. I think that's what's so painful is that there's these one size fits all policies that we're trying to enforce. So if you don't like, how something is going, you have to lobby for a change to the whole site, right? Like, but mm. I should be able to carve out this little space around me where the people that I'm interacting with, or um, maybe I have a filter set up such that even if they're saying something that I wouldn't want to hear, it doesn't reach me. I should be able to kind of create the policy for myself and then um, consensually create p policy for the communities that I'm associated with. And it may be very different. You know, maybe my, uh, how I interact in certain circumstances is very different than how I interact in other circumstances. And those things don't necessarily have to all mix. So I think, I think we're kind of seeing this kind of, um, a lot of these pain points coming from um, this kind of, I don't know. It's, I, it feels like a very industrial view of, 
of life where it's like you're a human being that is producing content, like you're a factory of content, right? Rather than it being this, uh, no, you're you're in particular communities that may have their own customs and rules and you can enforce those separately. Mm. I think that, you know, what, what you're saying about, you know, creation of local communities sort of throws me back to, you know, the golden age of the internet as I remember it. And the, I mean, I was a lot younger then. But at the end of the 90s, beginning with the 2000s, with forums and BBSs, was sort of a, 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 an age where, where we all thrived in, on the internet. You know, the, the information was there. You could create very strong bonds. I mean, even now I have friends that I've known for 20 years only online. I mean, it was sort of a, 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 an epic thing to achieve, to, be, to participate in very proactive discussions on, on, on different topics. And I think that what has been lost and what I truly believe can be achieved yet again is some kind of a, 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 I mean, it's an evolution at the very end. I mean, we are living in a global society and everything is moving sort of to one, to a one size fits all model. But at the same time, I think that with the risk, the risk factors that are sold sort of rising on all fronts, especially with regards to social media and our communication online, I think that we, we will be going back to, to somehow compartmentalized internet, which, which I, I truly believe can be a way for us to sort of uh, filter each other out in some kind of a way and just get out of our, our, our artificially constructed echo chambers. <clears throat> Kate, um, what would you recommend for like reading or um watching for people who want to learn more about smart contracts, libertarianism, what's like your reading toolkit? Oh man. Um, hmm. There's so much. Uh, I think, I think I would have to, it would take me like a week to come up with a good list. I think, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I think, You know, I, I think the part that is missing most from um, from people's worldview is uh, the idea that you can you can be concerned about social justice and you can be concerned about people's rights and you can still be in favor of free markets and that all of those things can kind of go together. And so, um, uh, I, I really like um, this blog that actually has. Um, They've just uh, they've just shut it down, um, it, but it was successful, I think, for like seven years or something like that. Um, and it's called Bleeding Heart Libertarians. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of my favorites. Um, and then each of the authors there has, you know, they they have their own books of stuff that's fantastic, like Jason Brennan and, and so forth. But um, what I really love is their perspective, where um, their version of libertarianism isn't, you know, um, what's in it for me, you know. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. It's not that like knee jerk mm. version of it. I don't even know what to call it. It's very much based in, um, in, uh, in a concern for, for people and their autonomy and for their right to determine what they think the good life is and pursue that. And I really, really like that. Um, and I, and I think also the, um, the things that I find most interesting are trying to grapple with things like, um, like uh like Rawls you know theory of justice and 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 things like that where you're um you're concerned with the uh the concept of um of 
inequality or injustice or, or things like that and trying to find solutions that aren't trampling on people's rights. Mm. What do you think about sovereign individual that everyone seems to love these days? Which one is that? Sovereign individual. Uh, oh, the... oh. <laughs> sovereign individual. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on the sovereign individual. Um, <laughs> I know, that's, that's why I asked exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like, so it's a, it's a very polemic book, I think. Like, um, a lot of it doesn't seem to be well-organized or well-researched. <laughs> um, there's a part on, like, women and witches or something like that it, that's in, like, page 300 of the book, and you're just like, what? What the heck is this, right? <laughs> um, uh, I, think, I think a lot of the people who really like the sovereign individual have maybe not read all the details, or maybe they read it, like, 12 years ago, and they, you know, they liked it then, and they have fond memories of it, but I think when you, when you dig down into the sovereign individual, it's coming from a certain perspective, it's coming from, um, well, it's coming from these, um, these two, I guess you would call them fund managers, right, so they're, um, they have a business in, in, um, asking wealthy people to, uh, to give them money to manage for them, right, and they're, um, their view is that the, you know, the world is going to kind of collapse in a certain way. And so you should be, um, uh, putting your money into certain areas. So as, um, you know, so as to protect yourself from this collapse. And I feel like there's, to a certain extent, it's kind of a more civilized version of kind of the the uh, the kind of brute force libertarianism that I was mentioning earlier, where, you know, it's like, um, you know, don't take my stuff, leave me alone, that kind of a thing, right? But it's mm. kind of has a more civilized veneer. But there's not a lot of concern for, um, so, you know, they've mentioned this huge societal collapse, right? I don't think there's any mention, or, or at least very little mention of like, okay, in this huge collapse, don't we care about what happens to everyone else? Right. Like, even if we're, even if we're, you know, heading for the Hills and, and we're good, right. You know, we're Peter Thiel in New Zealand or something. Um, like, shouldn't we, shouldn't we care what happens to everyone else? And I think um, they, you know, they do make some good points in terms of they anticipated the rise of cryptocurrencies and they do make the point that on the internet, um, a lot of things are accessible to people in a way that wasn't before, right? Like there's a lot of educational materials and things like that. I think they kind of assume though that the mere presence of those educational materials means that everyone's on an equal uh, playing field and that it's, uh, you know, it's just people's, it's entirely people's own fault if they're not successful, which I think we know is not true. Um, and so I, I think there's just, um, in some cases they may have ended up being factually correct, but I think they're coming from a place that's not necessarily very scientific and not necessarily very concerned with what happens to the most vulnerable people. Yeah. Um, we discussed this in the past and yeah, that's why I wanted to ask. <laughs> so Kate, I, I think that we already took too much of your time. So thank you very much for, for being with us today. Uh, so Kate Seals is a bizarre mishmash of hippie, hippie anarchism and economic liberalism beefed up with lots of technological determinism. Uh, it was an honor having you and you have anything else to say to the audience? Any final thoughts? Uh, I don't think so, but thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. This has been really fun. 
Thank you a lot, Kate, and we will see the audience in the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>